Um, so this past week, uh, a lot has happened. There's been some tragedies. Uh, there was um, Valentine's Day. That's not the tragedy I'm talking about, but yeah, there was some, um, it, was, it was a week filled with a lot of stuff. Ash Wednesday happened. Um, so if those, those of you guys are observing that, you guys are probably lenting, fasting from certain things right now. Um, but uh, I, I've heard some stories of, of some ups and, da- and downs this week, and it's been a roller coaster ride. But, uh, you know, um, as much as there's a lot of things happening on the other side of the country, and there's stuff happening on the si- other side of the sea, like the Olympics, um, the thing that's happening more, that I'm hearing more about around me is basically about Valentine's Day, about how somebody promised something and then that person didn't come through. Or you expected somebody to do something for you and that person didn't come through. And um, I've talked about this before and I probably used this graphic before, but there's this understanding of expectation and reality. You expect your Valentine to do something nice for you. But the reality is he didn't do that for you or she didn't do that for you. And so there's a gap between what you expected and the reality that you experienced. Okay, so for example... Today's Valentine's Day, and he is going to get me some flowers and chocolate, <laughs> right? Valentine's Day comes. You call him. It's like, hey, you know what today is? Like, yeah, Wednesday. Like, okay. Um, all right, well, you know, call me if you want to do anything. He's like, well, why would I want to do something today? You know, like, like and so the, there's, the, there's the expectation, and there's a reality, and there's a gap right there in between. And a lot of times we fill that gap with things in our own imaginations. Like, for example, okay, he made reservations for dinner, right? And it's going to be a romantic dinner. That's, that's your expectation, right? He picks you up at four and he takes you to a restaurant for a 4.30 reservation because it turns out like the, the popular time was already taken. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, my expectation was we're going to eat around six, right? But we're eating at 4.30. Now, what's going on here? So you fill in that gap. He probably forgot to make reservations and that's why he had to make the 4.30 reservation today. That's, 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 the gap that you're filling in, okay? Now, that's if you don't trust him or her, whoever made the reservation, right? If you have all the trust in, in the world for this person, you would probably say something like this. You know what? He had a really tough week. He probably had, had a 6.30 reservation, but the restaurant made a mistake, and therefore we ended up with the 4.30. You give him the benefit of the doubt, right? So depending on who you are, you fill in that gap with whatever you think, right? So in most cases, this is what happens. You have expectations, and in that gap, you fill it with the worst-case scenario or the best-case scenario, right? So between, so between you and the other person. Now, it, could not, it doesn't have to be about you and your date. It could also be about, um, it could be about you and your kids, maybe, or you and your parents. You're expecting your parents to behave a certain way, and they didn't. They were supposed to pick you up from school at a certain time, and they didn't. And now you're like, okay, mom forgot to pick me up. Chances are, and you fill in the blank, right? If you're expecting the worst case scenario, she is probably hanging out with her friends and she forgot to pick me up because she doesn't love me. Or the best case scenario, you know what? She probably left 30 minutes early, but the traffic is so bad. It's not her fault. I know, you know, my mom is, is right around the corner. And that's what we do. We fill in that gap based on the relationship we have with that person, Right? Now, today I want to talk about not just our relationship with each other. I want to talk about a relationship with God, about with Jesus. When we pray for certain things and God doesn't come through with it, we feel we, there's a gap that's created right there. Okay, there's a gap. I prayed for healing and the healing didn't come. There's a gap. What do you fill that gap with? 
Best case scenario, oh, God has my, my, you know, like some people would say, oh, well, God has a plan. It didn't work out the way I wanted to, but I'm sure God has a plan. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, God doesn't love me, or maybe God's not real. So whatever stage in life we're in, whatever we're feeling at the time, whatever situation we're in, we fill in that gap with whatever we, wherever, wherever we are in life, right? That's what we do. Now, what we're going to look at today is we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. Okay, in Luke chapter 5, what you're going to discover is that there's a gap between what people expected Jesus to be and who he really ended up being. And when you fill in that gap, well, here's the interesting thing. The gap that's there wasn't created by accident. What you're going to discover is that God placed that gap there on purpose to find out who you really are. Okay, so, so today the question we're going to be looking at is this. How do you fill the gap that God creates? How do you fill the gap that God creates? God created a gap between your expectation of him and the reality of him. Okay, and what you put in that gap, well, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? So we're going to be looking at that. And so today we're going to be looking at two stories in Luke chapter 5. Two stories. One's going to, the first story is going to take place in a private setting. So there aren't that many people around, okay? But the second story takes place in a public setting. And you're going to see why that's important in a second, okay? But in both cases, Jesus is challenging our expectation of him. So what do we do with that, that curveball that God throws at us? So let's take a look at verse 12. We're starting from verse 12. It goes like this. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, leprosy. Today, we have a good definition for leprosy as back then, any kind of skin disease that they seemed um, contagious, that was considered leprosy. So it's not specifically saying it's that time leprosy. It could have been anything. We don't know what it is, okay? When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, back in those days, if they believe that you were contagious, you would be pushed out of the society and you would be living on the outside of the village. So Jesus was coming into town. He saw Jesus coming in and he knew that the minute Jesus walked in, he was off limits because he couldn't go into the village where the other people were. So as he saw Jesus, he mo- realized this is a private moment. If I don't catch him now, I'm not going to catch him ever. So I want, I want to make sure that I, I could talk to him right now. So he pulls, he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, would you please, please, can you, can you cure this, this ailment that I have? Can you clean my skin? Uh, can you do something? Because I have not seen my family for years. So Jesus' response. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Now, did you guys catch that? There's something that's really weird in this passage right here. Jesus does something that he's not supposed to do. Now look at the order of what he does, okay? He touched the man, that's number one. And then number two, he commanded him to be clean. He, was, he healed him, okay? So now here's the thing. Usually it's the other way around. You're not supposed to touch somebody that's unclean. So once the person becomes clean, then you can touch them because otherwise you get the disease, right? That was the deal. So, so there was this order to things and Jesus flips it around. He touches the man first and then he tells him to be clean. Now, this is, this is why this is such a weird thing. Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, if you read the Old Testament and the people who are the characters in the story, they're all familiar with the Old, Old Testament stories. They're like, super familiar with it, okay? So as you read through the Old Testament, and there's, in the book of Leviticus, there's all these cleansing rituals. Like if you do this, you have to go through this long, week-long cleansing ritual, which makes you think that God is a clean freak, that God could only be around things that are pure and clean, right? And so when you see Jesus come into the scene and he touches a person that's unclean, right? So a lot of people are like, wait a minute, this is weird. 
Jesus claims to be God, but he's touching a person that's not clean yet. So he's creating this big gap. So next screen. So there's expectation, right? And then there is reality. And now there's a gap that God created right here. What do you do with that gap? What do you do with that gap? Because I know that God's a clean freak, but here he's touching that guy before he heals him. How do I make sense of that? And so it splits the crowd into two. The people who are reading this story at this point will stop and say, wait, wait, let me try to figure this out. This is the way that it'll go, okay? So a part of you, a, a group of you, will look at this and say, well, Jesus claims to be God, and he's touching somebody that's unclean. That must mean he's unclean now, therefore he's not God. He is not God. That's how you fill the gap. Okay, A and B don't match, therefore he is not God, right? And you're probably like, <laughs> Jesus, you almost had me fooled. I was reading through the book of Luke thinking that you're going to be, you're going to say I'm God, but ah, I caught the mistake right there. There it is. This is proof that you are not God because you touched somebody that's unclean. You should have healed them first and then you should have touched them. Boom, right? That's, that's like, I gotcha, <laughs> right? But the other group of you would say, no, 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 which is this. No, no, no. This actually proves that he's God. You have the same data, right? Th- but one group will look at this and say, oh, you're not God. The other group will say, no, no, this is even more proof that he's God. And let me explain that to you, okay? Because Luke, when he's writing this, he's trying to challenge our perception of who God is. So take a look at the next part of the verse. It says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Uh, and he says, I'm willing, right? So he says, be clean. And then look at the next verse. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, this is what Luke is trying to say in this story. If you have a disease... And the person over here who doesn't have a disease comes in contact with the person. It is the assumption that your uncleanliness gets transmitted to the person who is clean. So if you have a flu, somebody who doesn't have a flu comes in contact. The person who doesn't have the flu eventually gets the flu. That's common sense, right? Luke is trying to tell a story here where he's basically saying, uh-uh, uh-uh, Jesus is so much God, okay? Well, I don't know if that's there's a scale of that. Okay, you're either God or not. But let's just say he is so much God and he's so holy, he's so clean, he's so powerful that when he comes in contact that that's somebody is unclean, he actually transmits his cleanliness onto the unclean person. Does, does that make sense? Like, so he's saying, you, th- you look at this data and say, oh, there's a gap, so therefore he is not God. Luke would say, no, 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 look at the story. This is something that only God can do. Therefore, he is God. So, you know, you're reading this and you get to this point, immediately the leprosy left him. You're like, whoa, right? And then Luke says, but that's not where the story ends. I'll give you another proof that he is actually who he says he is. Like, if you had a hard time filling that gap with something positive, well, here's another reason why you should be positive about the fact that Jesus is God. Let me tell you why he is who he says he is. Then he says this, then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for you for, for your cleansing. So, he says, Jesus is like, Mr. Ex-Leprosy, you are now free to go back into your village. But before you do that, you need to go back to the priest, local priest, okay? And you need to talk to him, and, he- and he'll check to see if you have any leprous marks on you. And if he says you're clean, you could go back into your society and hang out with your friends again and with your family again. It's been years. I know you miss them, but now you could hang out with them again. Now, why would Jesus tell him to do that? Because the guy knows he's clean. God knows he's clean. Why does he need to do that? Well, Luke tells us, he says this, as a testimony to them. The people who were living in that village, okay, you know that feeling where um, your mistake eventually starts to identify you? What I mean by that is, if you're the guy that, that, that always had the dirty shirt, right, 
for example, okay? And after a while, you were just known, not, not Kotz, the guy with the dirty shirt, you were known as the guy with the dirty shirt, you know, like they forgot your name because you're just now known by the negative thing about you, right? That's what happens here is, yeah, you could have been Kotz, the guy with leprosy, but eventually you're just called a leper. Like your identity became the thing that, that your ailment became your identity, and so even though you could come into town saying, guys, I used to have leprosy, but I don't, let's, let's hold hands because look, my hands are clean. People are going to be like, I don't want to touch you. Why? Because you're a leper. I don't even know your first name anymore. You're a leper, Mr. You know, Mr. Leprosy, you know, like, right? And so in order to overcome that, you have to have a, word of, a, a voice of authority, which would be the, the priest. The priest would say, guys, you could touch him again because he's clean. I checked him out. I checked, you know, everywhere behind his hands, his elbows, under his armpits. He's completely clean. He is now able to integrate back into society. Okay, now, why is this important? Because when Jesus came to see this person, okay, he saw not just one problem, he saw two problems. The first problem was obvious, he had leprosy. But the second problem is he has not had physical contact in years. He has not talked to his family in years. He has been isolated for years. And so the reason why Jesus touched him was because he realized there's two things that needed to be healed here. One was his leprosy, but the other one was his isolation. So Luke is saying, do you want proof that Jesus is exactly who he says he is? Do you think he was making himself unclean by touching the person who had leprosy? No, 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 no. He was actually healing the person of his isolation by touching him, and then he healed him of his leprosy. So he was actually healing him twice, and that's something only God can do. So again, there's that gap. God is holy, God is clean, all that great stuff, right? And God just touched somebody who was leprous. Oh, you fill in the gap. Oh, he must not be God. No, 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 no. But then Luke says, ah, if you fill in the gap with that negative answer, then here's some proof that you were actually wrong. He is God. Why? Because he could transmit his cleanliness to somebody else, number one. And number two, he actually was healing another ailment, which was called isolation. So no person should be isolated. So now your reading's like, oh, wow, that, 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 okay, okay, you got me there. Okay. Then he's like, now let me tell you another story. Verse 17. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. That basically means everywhere from Jerusalem. So now it's no longer private, it's a public thing, okay? And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So now Jesus is about to heal somebody. Next verse. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. So there's some people. Now, this story, there are other parts of the Bible that tell the same story. Uh, Book of Mark and Book of Matthew also tell this story. And in that, they give you a little more detail, such as the fact that there were actually four guys who was carrying. So let's just say there are four men carrying the paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay (laughs) him before Jesus. By the way, um, if you read the Mark version of the story, it kind of implies, not for certain, but kind of implies that this is actually Jesus' house. So Mary's like, why are so many people in my house? <laughs> okay, anyways. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So these guys, they actually digged a hole in the ceiling and made a hole and lowered him so that they could place the, you know, like they could like lower him into the presence of Jesus. Again, Mary's like, dude, that's my roof. What are you doing? (laughs) Okay, but anyways. (laughs) Okay, so you got the scene so far, right? There's a guy that's paralyzed. He can't move. 
and he has four friends who are like, we need to get him well. There's Jesus in the town. He's here. Let's, let's do whatever we can to get him to, into the presence of Jesus. That's, that's the scene here. Okay. Now, the response that Jesus has to this is very interesting. We're going to talk about that for a few minutes. He says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you read this for the first time, you're probably like, yeah, but that's not why we brought him here. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, um, I don't know, like saying like, hey, I have a question and the guy doesn't give you an answer but instead gives you like a lollipop. It's like, what, what's going on here, Jesus? I thought you knew our thoughts. I thought you knew what we were lo- asking for. There's a reason why he does this. Okay, and we'll come back to this verse a little bit more later on. Okay, and so, so Jesus looks at the guy here and there's religious rulers all around that's watching this happen. Jesus says, hmm, friend, your, your sins are forgiven. Let's see how people respond to that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Meaning, this guy just totally offended God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's like, did Jesus just say he could, that he just forgave sins? Wait, only God could do that. So the Pharisees already made up their minds that they don't think that Jesus is actually God. Jesus, uh, next verse. Jesus knew that they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? It's like, I see the skepticism in your eyes. Well, why are you thinking these things? Next verse. Uh, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, God, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And there's a lot packed in that verse. I don't have time to talk about it today, but if you're more interested in the phrase Son of Man, read the book of Daniel chapter 7. Okay, now here, I know, that's like a side note. It's totally not what I'm talking about today. But if, in case you want to know more, read the book of Daniel. Okay. So here, Jesus says something interesting. You guys are offended by the fact that I said, you know, your sins are forgiven, right? And he, then he, his response to them is like, well, what is easier to say? Uh, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? To which I would say, well, they're pretty both easy, easy to say. I could say, I could say it now, you know. <laughs> um, whichever has less... Um, syllables that'll be easier to say <laughs> uh, you know but what jesus is really saying here is not like which one's easier to say he, so let's take a look at these two verses uh t- two quotes your sins are forgiven and get up and walk there's these two things now in those days to say such a thing with boldness was something that only god was allowed to say basically if i were to walk around telling people hey your sins are forgiven then i'm implying that i'm actually god and nobody could do that right? Nobody's allowed to do that. Or if I were to see a, a person who's paralyzed, for me to tell that person to get up and walk, that, was something, that would be something only God w- was able to say back then, right? So Jesus is like, look, there's two things I could have said here. Get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And both of them are things that only God can say, right? So I understand why you are so offended by that, okay? So Jesus is purposely creating a gap again. So here, there's the expectation and there's reality, the expectation, so the expectation is only God is allowed to say these things, and the reality is here's a man who's saying these words, so there's a gap. So we're going to fill in that gap with whatever you, want, right, whatever you think, right? So the religious rulers, next, next slide, fill that gap by saying, oh, Jesus is being blasphemous. He's pretending to be God when he's really not. But there's another group of people who hear this and say, oh, no, 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 Jesus is God. He just said it. Like, I trust, at his, I trust him at his word. He said that he is God, so I'm going to trust him. So Jesus, in saying this, he's actually splitting the group into two smaller groups. Groups of people who are skeptical and a group of people who are trusting Jesus at his word. Okay, are you, are you following so far? Because it's about to get a little more, just a little bit more complicated, okay? All right, so let's look at these quotes again. 
Your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. These are the two things that he could have said, but instead of saying, get up and walk, he actually started off by saying, your sins are forgiven. Now, why did Jesus start off with that one? Why? Because of these two things, there's only one that can actually be proven externally. If I were to say your sins are forgiven, you're just going to be like, I, I guess it just happened. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't tell, right? But if, if Jesus were to say, get up and walk, then God gets up and walk, you're like, okay, there's proof that he was actually, that Jesus is actually God. Jesus purposefully starts with the quote that you cannot prove externally. Because by using the quote that cannot be proven, he could split the group and create a gap to see, where do you stand with me? The people who would say, if Jesus said it, it must have happened. I totally trust in his word. That's one group. And the other one group is like, I, I, you know, I, I can't trust him. What he just, I, I can't trust him. Uh, I need more proof. Jesus purposely started with the quote that you can't prove externally. Why? Because he wanted to know who the people who were faithful, the people who would trust him. He purposely created a gap to see where people will end up, and it worked. The religious rulers were the ones who were very skeptical. Everybody else were like, yes, I totally believe what you just said. Right? Because this is why. Because Jesus' number one mission here is not to heal people, but is to have a relationship with people. And what he knows is this, that it's extremely difficult to have a relationship rooted in proof. Imagine if my relationship with my wife was rooted in proof, okay? I come home from work, and she's like, hey, how was work? Work was great, and here's proof. I have pictures from my day today, and look, okay, this is me having a good day at work, and this is me having lunch. Oh, here, I have the receipt for lunch. Look, I have this, and this is how much I spent. If you want to see my credit card statement, I'll show you that too. Here you go. Do you trust me? It's like, yes. But what were you doing from 1 to 2 o'clock? Oh, okay, hold, hold on. If you look at my GPS coordinates, I was actually here. You, here's the phone number you could call because that's the person I was hanging out with. Now, what kind of relationship is that? Right, we all do want proof because we don't want to be taken, you know, we don't want to be made a fool, right? Like, you could be lying your whole relationship, and at the end of that, you're going to be like, I can't believe I was lied to my whole life. And some of you have probably, probably experienced that, and you know you have the scars to prove it. But the extreme other side of that is also not healthy. That you need proof for every single thing that you need in a relationship. Right? And that's why a good relationship cannot be founded on proving yourself every step of the way. This is why Jesus is looking for opportunities for people to trust him. And he's like, I'm going to make a statement that's going to create a gap. And I'm looking for people who are going to trust me at my word. And so he says it. And then the Pharisees and the religious rulers are like, oh, I need proof. Oh, that's not, you're not God. And there's another group of people who are like, I believe what he just said. And you're like, yes, I want to have a relationship with you because you guys, you guys trust me. And that's what relationships are based on. Thank you so much. Now, you guys over here, you guys who need proof. Well, let's continue the story. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So he's like, now for my second miracle, <laughs> right? Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. So at this point, they're like, okay, so there's the proof that I was looking for. Okay, and now all these people who were naysayers are now jumping into the other camp over here, right? And we know that because the next verse, it says this, everyone, not just half of the group, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Everybody was praising God all of a sudden. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. To which God, Jesus is like looking at them and saying, yeah, okay, uh, it's, yeah, okay, thanks. You know, you guys I'm really happy with because you guys trust me. You guys need proof. 
You see, these two stories are placed here because it's not to show us who God really is because he's already, he doesn't have to prove to us. If you remember a few chapters back, everybody knows that Jesus is God because the Holy Spirit came on top of him like a dove and, and the voice of God came from the heavens saying, this is my son. When we'll, you know, like, if you were at that scene, then you don't need any proof that he is actually God. But everybody in this story is asking for proof and the people who ask for proof are the, one, are the ones who God is not too pleased with. So in other words, how we fill in that gap reveals not who God is, but it reveals our biases. If it, it, it reveals who we are. Like if you're in a relationship and you see a gap in the expectation of reality, somebody was supposed to pick me up at 5 o'clock, he picked me up at 6. What happened? What you fill that gap in right there is more of a revelation of who you are and how much you trust that person that was supposed to pick you up, more so than the person who was late to pick you up in the first place. It tells you who you are. Where do you stand with God? Well, how do you fill in those gaps? When you pray to God and say, Lord, would you heal me of this and this, and it doesn't happen the way you expect it to happen, do you stand in the gap and say, yeah, God, that, that, that was, no, no. Like, you must, you must not be all-powerful then. Or do you say, I you know, I don't know how you work, but I know your ways are better than mine. Um, I'm just going to trust you that this is how you want it to go. Like, how do you fill in that gap? Because that filling of that gap right there determines and it, it actually reveals where you stand with God. How your heart is. Now, I want to go back and revisit chapter 5, verse 20, just a few verses back, because in that verse um, reveals something very important about this, this whole story, which is this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Faith. Faith. If for some reason, throughout the Bible, we see this word faith. In the book of Hebrews, they even define for us what faith is. But I want to specifically talk about the faith that's used in this verse because it's, it's a very special kind of faith. You see, because we set our biases according um, to, well, for you and I, we, we set our biases based off of one thing that we're stubborn about. And I'll explain to you what that means, okay? So, Let's just say, in this relationship uh, with, uh, let's just say, well, let's just say me and my wife, right? If she creates a gap for me, meaning she said she'll do one thing, but she didn't do that thing, and now I, it's up to me to fill in that gap, okay? There's going to be one thing that I'm going to be stubborn about that's going to help me fill in the gap. So if I were to say, no matter what happened, I know that my wife loves me, and so you start to fill in that gap based on that one fact, that one thing I'm not willing to compromise, does that make sense? Or if, if you're the kind of person that's like, people liked me in my past, and so I just know for a fact I can't trust anybody, and that's the thing that you're stubborn about, then how you fill in that gap is going to be based around that one fact, okay? And so when Jesus saw the faith of these people, he's basically looking at them and saying, these people are willing to be stubborn about one thing. So here, faith is setting your bias according to God's character. So what I mean by that is this. Some bad things happened a few days ago uh, on the other side of the United States. And people are wondering, where was God in all that? So there's a gap. Something evil happened, right? But I believe that God is good. What, what's, what, what's going on there? Does that mean that God is not powerful enough to stop these things from happening? Or maybe God isn't good? Or maybe God doesn't care enough to do anything about that? These are all the things we fill in the gap, right? But faith is basically saying, I have no idea how to fill in this gap, but I know one thing is for, for sure. One thing I'm not willing to compromise on, that God is good and God is love. That's the one thing I'm willing to be 
extremely stubborn about. I'm not willing to shift on that one thing. I know it doesn't explain why that thing happened over there, but all I know is God is good, and I'm not willing to move that one pillar that I have in my life. I'm going to use that as a foundation to explain everything else in this gap, right? But that thing, I'm not going to move. That's, that's what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to not change my mind about this one thing. Everything I'm going to explain about this gap is going to be based on that one thing. In the same way that if something, if somebody were to call me and say, hey, Kotz, um, your wife, I, I just saw, she, she's supposed to be at work right now, right? It's like, yeah. But I just ha- saw her at a cafe nearby having a meal with somebody else, like, like a lunch, and they're holding hands. And I'll be like, well, okay, well, let me fill in that gap. I know that my wife is committed to me. I know she loves me. So I'm going to fill in the gap. So that probably wasn't her. Or maybe that was, I don't know, um, she was hanging out with her dad. I don't know, right? (laughs) I don't know, right? But I'm going to fill in that gap based on that one thing, right? That one thing that I'm not willing to move. And that is the character of my wife. I am not going to compromise my knowledge of, of who I know her to be. In the same way, Jesus was moved by the fact that these, guys, these four guys who brought their, their, their friend on this mat and was willing to not give up when they saw the crowd, but actually go up on the roof and dig a hole in somebody's house, which is totally, I'm guessing, illegal back then, you know, and lowered him down, risking the person's life, right? All this because they were so stubborn of the fact that God is love, that God is a healer. And they said, I'm not going to, like, no matter what happens, I'm not going to give up on that one thing. And I'm going to explain everything. And my whole worldview is to me based on that one thing. That is what he t- means by when he says faith. I don't know why bad things happen in the world. But one thing is, sh- is for sure, God is good. I don't know why every time I pray, like, when I ask for God to do certain things, they don't happen. But I do know one thing for sure, God hears my prayers. I don't know how to explain this and this and that, but I know one thing for sure. God is for justice. God is righteous. I don't know why this is falling apart, but I know one thing is for sure. God wants to redeem all things. Faith is setting your bias, all the biases in the world, according to God's character, which is immovable. That is what he's talking about. And that's the thing that moved Jesus to heal the person. When it comes to this gap, you need to have that one solid thing that you're willing to say, because of this, I can trust in him. I pray for God to do certain things and it didn't happen, but I will continue to trust in him. Bad things are happening in my life, but I know one thing that's, not, that's immovable in my life, and it's this one thing, and because of this, I will trust in him. Even when times seem tough and I, just, I feel so alone, I will trust in him. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I can't explain these things. I don't know what to put in this gap, but I do know one thing for sure, and it's God's character. So the question I have for all of us today is this. How do you fill your gap? How do you fill your gap? And maybe a better question is, why do you fill your gap with the things you fill it with? If you're a skeptical person, and that's not a bad thing. The Bible encourages us to ask questions and sometimes even doubt, and that's okay as long as it doesn't just stay there, that you're always actively trying to find ways to, to you know, find out why that tension's there in the first place. How do you fill it in your gap? Do you find yourself always not giving God the benefit of the doubt? Well, why? Why? Were you hurt in the past? You know, and maybe that scar is the reason why you're always having a negative view about God never giving him the benefit of the doubt. 
Why do you fill the things in that gap with the things you do? When I think about the Bible, Old Testament to New, I think about these characters, these people who are people, they're called the people of faith. You know, these are the heroes of the Bible. I think about people like, like I mentioned before, the book of Daniel, the character Daniel, and our worship leader, Daniel. But, you know, Daniel, right? There was a scene in the, in the book of Daniel where him and his three friends are thrown into the lion's den. And before they're thrown in there, they're praying to God, and before they're thrown in there, they look to the guy that's throwing him in there, and he says, they say this, they said this, they said, God might save us from this, he may not, but one thing is for sure, God is good. You see, they had faith in God's character regardless of the circumstance. There's a story uh, in the middle of the Bible called uh, Job. It says, God would give us things and he'll take away things, but no matter what the circumstance, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's saying, circumstance doesn't change the fact that, that God is, is the only one that's worthy of being blessed. Right? Um, John, uh, the book of John, um, he wrote the book of Revelation. And this is when all Christians are being persecuted. And when you feel like there's no hope in the future, John writes this letter saying, hang in there because we know even on the other side of this nastiness that we're going through, that there's going to be something beautiful. So don't give up. He says, no matter what the circumstances say right now, I'm going to put my faith, I'm going to be stubborn about this one thing, and that is that God has a plan for this world, and it's going to be beautiful. It looks ugly now, but I'm not going to let that change my mind of the fact that God has something beautiful for me after this. The great heroes of the Bible, these are the people who decided to fill in that gap with God's character and decided to, and they, they resolved that they're not going to shift from that one thing. They may not be able to answer the question, well, why does this happen? Why does these things happen? But they're like, I don't know how to answer that, but I do know this one thing, that God is good, that God is love. So therefore, I will trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.